Oops. Um, if you would, why don't you pray with me as we come to dedicate the tithes and offerings. Father, thank you that you are a giver of good gifts. We recognize that we are creatures, limited and dependent, and that we depend upon you for all that we are, all that we know, um, all that we think, all that we desire, and all that we, um, all that we have. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us to be a people who reflect the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be a people who are a generous people, a caring people, a compassionate people, a truthful people. And so, Father, we give desiring these things. Um, we ask that you would use our tithes and offerings to continue the work that you are doing uh, in this church, in this community, and across the nations. Uh, to, for your word to be proclaimed, and for people to know you as Savior and King. And so, Father, as we uh, come to this time in our service in which we open up your word, we pray, too, that you would continue to give to us, that your spirit would be at work in us as we uh, read your word and the word is preached and the hearing of your word, that you would uh, conform us in our minds to Christ, that we'd be transformed according to your power that's working us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning will be in Exodus chapter 17. So Exodus chapter 17. I know this is a bit of a diversion from 1 John. Um, and, and here's the reason why. Uh, this last Friday, I had the opportunity to uh, go to Presbytery and be examined and part of that examination is to preach. And so uh, this was the text that I uh, preached from at Presbytery on Friday, and I just I wanted to share it, share it with you today. As we come to the word, a little background uh, about what's happened at this point very briefly. Uh, God has powerfully provided for Israel by delivering them out of their slavery in Egypt and having delivered them, he is now taking them. They are on a journey, making their way to Sinai, where God would covenant with them. And when we get to Exodus 17, they're actually still on that journey. The challenge is, is this journey is proving to be a bit difficult for them. And, and in response to these difficulties, the people are beginning to show a pattern of grumbling due to their lack of physical provisions. And so as we come to this, they have just, chapter 16, they've, they were hungry, and God provided for them this manna from heaven, and now in this chapter, a number of threats come as well. Hear the word of God, Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, 
and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with the Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This, this passage for me is both a sober reminder and it's also a great comfort to me. Uh, it's a sober reminder because in it we see that, or we're reminded really, that threats um, are specifically threats to our, our faith, our, our faithfulness, and our walk with the Lord. These threats are always with us. They are within us and they are coming from outside of us. But it's also a great comfort to me because in it we see that Yahweh powerfully provided for his people. He powerfully provided for Israel through his servant Moses. And for us, we know that he has powerfully provided for us through Jesus. And that is our great comfort and so what I want to do this morning is to divide this into two parts. First, look at verses 1 through 7 and consider how God powerfully provides for us when our own sin threatens. And second, I want to look at verses 8 through 16 and consider how God provides for us when the enemy uh, threatens us. And so first, we see the threat of sin. At the end of verse 1, we read this, as the people came and camped at Rephidim. It says, there was not water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now, we read that, and, and if you're like me, I'm, I'm quick to jump on the people of Israel, right? Um, and and we, need to, we need to stop and just consider what it was that they were facing. I mean, they're in the wilderness, and there's no water, Right? Like that, that's a big deal. That's no small thing. They were there, and they knew that life was grim without such water. And so you, you, you sense, as you read their reaction, that they, they felt the desperation of this threatening and this difficult moment. 
And just imagine, if you would, for just a moment, put yourself in such a situation or a similar situation. When you find yourself threatened or in a difficult place, what might you do? How would you react? What would be your response? Right? Just do a quick download of 2020. How do we do? Right? Well, Israel, they quarreled with Moses. And the language here highlights the severity of their response. This is not simply a grumbling under their breath. They're not sitting at the local coffee shop just uh, gossiping about the failures of Moses' leadership. It's, it's much more than that. Right? What, what's happening here is a reviling. It's, it's something more akin to a verbal abuse than it is just underhanded comments of a frustrated constituency. So severe was it that Moses says that these people are about ready to stone me. And in response, uh, Moses asked this question. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? These are parallel. They're set beside one another. We realize that their reviling was not simply a rejection of his leadership. It was a rejection of Yahweh's sovereign hand. But he was accusing Yahweh, or they were accusing Yahweh of bringing them into the wilderness so that they would die. It's not merely about water or the lack thereof. This is about their failure to trust in the sovereign hand of the Lord. Remember in verse 1 why they came to Rephidim? It says they left the wilderness of sin, and they came to camp here, and they moved according to the commandments of the Lord. And God had already shown himself faithful to the people in delivering them out of Egypt and powerfully overcoming their enemies. He provides manna for them to eat and just in the chapter before. And now they've determined that this Yahweh, who's done all these things, have simply brought them into the wilderness so that they might die by dehydration. Like, it really doesn't make sense, right? And what is it that they are thinking to accuse the Lord? And that's the thing about sin. Sin doesn't make sense. Right? This moment revealed how the hardness of their own hearts had kept them from trust and it had caused them to rebel. And this, this is the plight. This is the threat of the sinful human hearts. It's the threat of our own sin. And so Moses, in response to this, he cries out to the Lord, and Yahweh responds in verse 4. He says, uh, he tells Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Now, this word before, it alludes to one's face. Uh, the idea of passing on before uh, was that this was to be something in front of the people, before their faces, right? So something that they would see for themselves. And, Mo and Moses is told to, to bring some of the elders with him so that they would see for themselves. It was to be done in their very presence. This was a direct answer to their faithless question, 
that's recorded for us at the end here at verse 7, where, where they ask, is the Lord among us or not? And Yahweh, it's like he responds, I'm with you. Now, watch this. And he commands Moses to strike the rock, to hit it, to beat it, to smite it. And the language of striking up to this point comes in the context of judgment. In chapter 3, verse 20, uh, it says that Yahweh would, that his judgment would come upon Egypt by striking it with his hand. Moses struck the Nile and water turned to blood. He struck the dust of the ground and gnats came forth. He, he struck um, the fields of Egypt with hail and, of course, the most sobering of all. The Lord struck the firstborn of all of Egypt as a final sign and judgment. And so as the readers reading through this, we might come to expect that the result of God's command to strike the rock would be a kind of judgment sign as a result of the people's sin. Like surely, surely people were about to die. What a trembling moment this might have been as Moses raised this staff in the air and he strikes the rock. And then water comes out. Not judgment, but water. Life giving, life sustaining water. His response stands in stark contrast to the severity of the sinful actions of the people. God is merciful to them. And he provides for this hard-hearted, quarreling, testing people. And, and this is where all things begin to come together for us because we realize that we're not all that different from the people in the wilderness. We too are sinners. We too, at various times, in a various way, we doubt and reject God's sovereign hand upon our lives. Truthfully, if I had been in, in Rephidim on those days, you likely would have heard my voice standing there crying out, stone him, is the Lord among us or not? And the truth is, I think we can all relate to that relate to the threat of our own sin, and yet God, he is gracious, and he is merciful to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul said the rock was Christ. Isaiah says of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him, esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear that? That's our word. To strike the rock, he was struck, he was smitten. In the wilderness, this rock is struck. It is smitten as an act of justice and out flows God's grace in the form of water. 
And with Christ, Father struck the Son as a judgment for our sins at the cross, for his people, for sinners like you and me, and out comes living water. Water that gives eternal life to us, his people. Following this, the place is then called Massah and Meribah, which are words that are just related to the people's testing and their quarreling. And and really, this naming memorializes this event. But I'll be honest, this seems a bit odd to me. Right? We just come off this great and glorious and amazing event, and I would expect the thing to be called water or rock or provide or kitten memes or Mahomes, anything positive, something, right? But instead, it's memorialized by their testing and their quarreling. Why? We're not told exactly, but I think this is a healthy application for us. It seems important for the people to not forget their own failure, their own foolish defiance, indeed their sin, because their sin would not so easily leave them, and our sin does not so easily leave us. It is pervasive, it is insidious, it is a threat, it is threatening to us. But this beautiful thing happens when we, when we face our sin, and we consider and recall God's Mercy in Christ, we repent. We repent. We, 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 we turn from our foolish defiance and we cast ourselves upon Jesus, the one smitten by God and afflicted, that we might know his mercy, that we might know his forgiveness, that we might know his eternal life. And so while this sin does threaten our faith, this repentance actually serves as an act of our faith, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because because as we consider the depth of our own depravity, it underscores the height of God's glory, his his glory, his, his nature and also his glorious grace to us. And that's a beautiful thing. Speaking of heights, a few summers ago, um, I reached the pinnacle of my dadhood. Before I tell you about the great accomplishment that I I was able to to accomplish, let me give you some, some backdrop. I... I hate yard work, okay? Um, Rick Pratt, some of you know him, he used to say that preachers love mowing their lawn. And, And the reason he would say that is because in ministry, much of what we do is just kind of perpetual. Like, so I have things on my to-do list that I'll never get the the joy of crossing off. It's just always going to be there. And I think for him, mowing the lawn, he was able to step back and see a job completed and, and just feel really good about it. He thought it was great. Personally, I think that's ridiculous because my yard continues. In fact, the weeds in my yard continue to grow perpetually. And so even when I'm done mowing, the job's not really done in my mind. So 
He loved it. I hate it. Well, a few years ago, in an entirely self-serving way, I decided that my kids needed the great privilege of mowing. And so uh, I had a problem, though. I didn't think they were quite ready for uh, the powered motor, and, and I really wanted them to be able to do it during the day and, and me not have to be present. So I asked for a gift. I asked for one of the old five-blade manual mowers. And my kids and wife were gracious to give this to me for Father's Day, but little did they know that I would turn around and gift it right back to them. And each of them mowed once a week. You have to keep it short in order for it to work, and so they mowed once a week, and, and my summer was fantastic. Now, fast forward a couple of years after doing this. They, they loathe doing this. Um, and I decided, okay, I think they're ready. I'm going to turn them over to the self-propelled gas uh, engine mower. And the greatest thing happened. They got behind the thing, and it was so much better. And they, they began to really enjoy mowing. Right? Because the old thing was terrible, and this was a glorious thing. Now, I don't know that they liked it so much that they would choose to do it in their own free time, but I can guarantee you, like, we never had a problem as, as far as, like, convincing them they need to mow. Like, usually it was full of strife. This was glorious. This was good. Um, and, and, and why? Because, really, they experienced the horrible nature of the old mower, and this new one was... It, was, it just was underscored. It was, it was this wonderful thing, right? Well, in a serious way, such it is as we consider the depravity of our own sin. Because it highlights the majesty and the beauty of God in his grace. The beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that... As we experience that, it changes us. It really does change us. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking, yeah, Ryan, but this past year was a rough one and I fell into some bad habits. Like, you're talking about repentance, but how is it that I am supposed to fight my battles? How is it that I am to overcome these things? How is it that I'm to fight the bottle or the phone or the spending or the gossip or the Facebook post or the laziness or the bitterness or the lies or the unfaithfulness or the fill in the blank? Well, let me give you a practical activity, just to something very practical that you can go home and do. I want you to find a story in the scriptures, something that you find repulsive something that really highlights the sinfulness of sin. And as you find it, then I want you to replace the person or the people in the text with yourself. And I want you to exchange your own sin for the sin in that passage. And then I want you to let yourself go down into the sinfulness of it. To feel and to experience the depravity of it. And then when you're there, I want you to remember Jesus and to recall God's mercy to you that Christ is the rock that was struck, smitten, that you might know forgiveness, that there would be 
now no condemnation for that sin. Let yourself be overwhelmed in that moment at the very mercy of God. Repentance. And sure, there are other things that we can do in, in living in the community and these practices that we can do, but, but, but repentance, it, this is how, this is the foundation for how we fight our battles. This is how we overcome because all these other things will fall into place as we let repentance be the pattern of our lives. Because in repentance, the Spirit is at work in us to conform us more and more into the image of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the threat of sin, the mercy of God, and the call to repentance. The first threat in the chapter is from within. It's our sin. The second threat is from the outside. And it's from without, I guess. Um, and it is a threat of the enemy. In verse 8, this threat is plainly stated. It says, Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now, we're not told the people's response, but rather the action moves immediately to God's servant, Moses. And Moses commands Joshua, he says, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, for me, I know, maybe for you, this sounds like a really odd battle plan. <laughs> but there was a practice in that day that was pretty common of what Moses is planning here. It was common for, as an army was preparing to enter into a battle, that they would take a rod or a pole, something with like an insignia or a flag on it, and they would raise it up and they'd put it on a high hill or in an obvious place amongst the people. And it was to serve as a rallying point a point of gathering, a point of focus. It was an object of hope. And I think it's significant that this staff called the staff of God is the same staff that was the object by which God struck the rock and outflowed water. And so Moses goes up onto this hill with that staff in his hand as a physical sign of the power and the presence of Yahweh with the people as they went to war. And as Joshua and the army, they fight Amalek, Moses raised his hand, presumably with the staff of God in it. And, and, and as long as he held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But, but when he began to falter, probably from exhaustion, Amalek prevailed. And finally, Aaron and her, they aid Moses and Israel finally defeats their enemies. Now, it's tempting for us to do with a passage like this sometimes what we do with it. And namely, it's to make it only a moral lesson about teamwork or holding each other up when we grow weary. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that unity or serving one another or mutual submission or cooperative spirit um, are not biblical ethics. I think they all are. In fact, I think this story illustrates some of those ethics quite nicely. But it's not the primary point of the passage. The point of the passage is that Yahweh, he is the one who gives his people victory. He is the one who's with them. He is the one who cares for them. And so he is the one 
that his people are to trust, to be our rallying point. And so our hope is in him. It's not in our teamwork, though we are called to mutual submission. Our hope's in him. Our hope's in him, and not in our religious practices, though we are commanded and even find good wisdom in our practices. Our hope is in him, not in the king, though we are called to pray for our leaders so that we can live peaceful lives. And our hope is in him, not in our social causes, though we are called to love God and to do good works. Our hope is in Jesus. And that's important for us to see because our hearts, we're prone to drift and to misplace our hope to transfer it from God to all these other things. And I think this is really clear in one of the ways that this last incident is memorialized. Just like in the first story, there's two memorials. Uh, One, it's written in a book that God would utterly destroy their enemy, Amalek. Um, And second, they were to build, they built an altar and they called it, the Lord is my banner. Now in naming it this way, Moses highlighting that Yahweh is the one who gave them victory. He's the one around whom the people would rally because he's the one who's defeated their enemies. He's the one that they are to trust. And just a minute ago, we read uh, these words uh, from How Can I Keep From Singing? And it says, I love mine eye, my eyes, the tempest roars, all help from God expecting whose banner over us is love until our souls perfecting. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing, right? Like he's our banner, he's our hope. And so he's the one that we rally around and we worship. He's our rock and our help. The prophet Isaiah personifies this banner or pole or signal. In Isaiah chapter 11, he says, In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal. That's our word. Stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the prophecy of the Messiah, the one we know to be Jesus. Jesus is the signal. He is the banner. Jesus, in his resurrection, he he defeated our great enemies. He defeated the devil and the great enemy, the last enemy, death itself. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author writes in verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54 through 56, speaking of the resurrection, the apostle writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. It no longer has has its hold 
on us. And death is yet a grievous thing. But we don't fear death because Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, perhaps it's not death itself that we fear. Perhaps it's the suffering or the, perhaps it's the dying that we fear. Or perhaps it's, it's not even our own dying, but perhaps it's the suffering and the grief of others that we fear. So we've got to recognize that this is no small thing. To say that we do not fear death is not to, to just offer simple platitudes. It's not a statement of indifference. Like we're not minimizing the real pain that we feel as a result of death. What we're doing is we're pointing ourselves, we're pointing one another to our lasting hope. Because, you see, life now is good. It's sacred even. In the sacred in the sense that God has given it to us, it's good, but, but there's something far better. And it's glory lived in the presence of Jesus, no longer in the shadow of death. Christ is our champion. He is our hope of this glory. And so the New Testament testifies of Jesus, that he is the one who is lifted up around whom all the earth would gather in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? Jesus is the one who has been lifted up, raised from the dead. He is the victorious Savior and King. His work is our victory and our hope. And so he's the one that we gather around. He's the one that we bow to. He's the one that we confess as Lord and Savior because apart from him, there is no help at all. In these two stories, there are two memorials for us. And think about this. The first memorial of this chapter reminds us of our sin and it calls us to repent. And the second memorial tells us of God's victory and, he, and it calls us to believe. The first memorial reminds us that we are saviors, and the second tells us that Jesus is our Savior. The first memorial reminds us that we are creatures, we are limited and dependent, but the second tells us that he is God, and he's mighty to save. Amen? Thank you. This, this is true. This is why we rejoice on a Sunday, and we're called together to worship the King. This is who we are. We belong to him. And he's our rallying point. He's the one that we gather around on the days that are hard and dark and difficult. That's where we come. He is our hope. He is the one. As the first memorial reminds us, and it, it, it causes us to blush. It, it, we lower our heads in shame as a result of our sin. And the second memorial, it lifts our heads that we might worship 
we would rejoice. We would stand boldly before Jesus. What a remarkable thing. How beautiful is that. Today we find in our faith our walk with the Lord threatened in various ways to various degrees. For some of us, it's our sin. Perhaps we've just grown tired of obedience. For some of us, maybe we've lost a certain kind of zeal that we once experienced in our, in our passion for the Lord. Perhaps for some of us, we've developed habits that are, are causing us to drift in some way. For others of us, it's something else that threatens. Perhaps we've been hurt or wronged at some point in our lives and our days, and now we're left to deal with a certain kind of bitterness, questions about the sovereign hand of the Lord. Perhaps we built up walls that, that keep us from experiencing the intimacy of the, the gospel and the intimacy that we have as a people belonging to Christ. Perhaps it's fear or worry or despair that seems to win our days, or, or maybe it's shame or the lies of the evil one that just echoes in our soul. Whatever it is that threatens, whatever or whenever threats assail us, we, we turn the, to the Lord and we follow him in the most basic and yet in the most profound way in repentance and faith. Sounds so simple. It is. But it's profound. God has powerfully provided for you in Jesus. Jesus was struck at the cross that you might know God's mercy and live freely in his grace. And Jesus was raised from the dead as your victory over death that you might continue to walk with him. These threats will continue to come. We, church, will have difficult days, days in which we will struggle to trust in the sovereign hand of our Lord. But in those days, this is our great comfort. Jesus, he's with you. He's made you his own. Jesus, he is our banner a rallying point. And so let's rally around him. Please pray with me. Father, your grace to us that we could open and hear from you and stand boldly knowing that we are receiving your goodness you're teaching us by your spirit who you are, what you've done, and who we are in Christ. Father, we are so grateful that, that you have given us Exodus 17 as, as a sober reminder of our own sin, and I pray that you would not allow us to move so easily away from a reflection upon our own sin, but cause us to be a people who truly understand that we do walk in the shadow of death, 
the shadow of sin. And yet, we're grateful that we have great hope, great comfort, that we belong to Jesus, that he is our rock, the one struck, smitten for us. That you, Lord Jesus, are our banner, the one we rally around as the one who's given us victory, eternal life. And so, Father, help us to believe. Let this be a pattern, a practice of our life in turning and trusting you. Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.